All right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it is now uh, Thursday, January 1st, 2015. Happy New Year to everybody. This, of course, is the Ion College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, which recently launched a version of its platform called Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and a feature called Cover Pages. If you want to try it, uh, go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUN. You'll get 10% off at checkout. That's Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. CBS Sports College Basketball Insider John Rothstein is joining me for today's episode. He's in New York City, and I want to start there because yesterday on New Year's Eve, a fun game between St. John's and Seton Hall. Seton Hall beat the nationally ranked Red Storm even without Isaiah Whitehead, who is, uh, of course, injured and probably going to be out uh, a couple of weeks. So now St. John's is 11-2, and Seton Hall 11-2. and And I guess my question is this, John, is, is any of this resonating in the New York area? It's been a while since basketball was good there, but there might be uh, two quality biggest teams in the New York area this season, right? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so, Gary. I think, you know, I personally was going to take caution in Seton Hall's start because I know that in a couple of times the Pirates played a legitimate opponent like Wichita State on the road, like Georgia on the road. They didn't look really, I think, at the level that I think people were hoping that they would. So I think yesterday was a statement win for Seton Hall. They proved that they're a legitimate team in the Big East. They're going to make a legitimate run at the top half of the conference. But for me, I expected each of these two teams to have really good perimeter play yesterday. I thought the key for Seton Hall was what it got from the front court. And, you know, Brandon Mobley has been enigmatic, to say the least, throughout the first three years of his Seton Hall career. But when he plays at a high level like he did yesterday and he posted a double-double, Seton Hall is a different basketball team. You know, people in the New York metropolitan area could kind of refer to Brandon Mobley as alternate side parking because <laughs> during the first three years of his Seton Hall career, he's been every other day. But to me, that was the story in the game, the fact that Seton Hall got so much out of Mobley and Angel Delgado. You know, I expected their guards to play well, and I obviously expected St. John's guards to play well. So. It's interesting you bring up Mobley and how he sort of I, – I don't know if this is a breakthrough season, but certainly yesterday he, he looked terrific All, elsewhere – you know, just as long as we're bouncing around New Year's Eve day, uh, New Year's Eve uh, games. You know, Indiana uh, went in Nebraska and won, and Hunter Perea, another guy who had been sort of just whatever in his Indiana career, looked terrific yesterday. And though I'm not comparing the teams necessarily, um, the main point remains the same, which is, you know, if Mobley can be that for Seton Hall and, and Perea can be that for Indiana, we're talking about two different basketball teams, right? Well, no, I don't think there's any question. And, you know, I think one thing, you know, getting to your point about Indiana, and I think, you know, that this has to be said, is, you know, Tom Crean has done a really good job adjusting to his personnel this year at Indiana. And, look, coaches that really have longevity in college basketball find ways to adjust to the personnel. Rick Pitino started out at Providence in 1987 by shooting more three-point shots than anybody else in the Big East and being an offensive-minded coach. Now at Louisville, he's obviously been known for the tremendous defense that his teams play on each and every possession. But Indiana, to me right now, is one of the hardest teams to prepare for in the country because they have five or six knockdown shooters. And one thing that's interesting, there's been times over the past couple of weeks where Tom Crean has used either Troy Williams or Colin Hartman at the five when Perea is out of the game. And it's kind of a look, Gary, that Creighton used last year when they would have Ethan Raggy and Doug McDermott up front. And what that means is you can't really play a traditional five defensively when Indiana goes that small 
because there's going to be a mismatch. If Troy Williams or Colin Hartman is going to be at the five, the opponent's defensive center has to come out to the perimeter that helps Indiana spacing. And look, Indiana still has some defensive issues. They're not a great defensive team. But because of how well they're shooting and how well they're scoring it, which I look today, they're shooting 49% from the field and 41% from three. They're one of the toughest matchups in the country, and they're playing in a Big Ten conference, which is really Wisconsin and everybody else. So we're talking about Seton Hall and Indiana here in the opening minutes. I guess the common denominator there, or another common denominator, would be, you know, Kevin and Tom both entered the season, I don't know about that hot seat. I, I, that's always so difficult to define, but certainly under some pressure. And yet, um, it's still early. We both know that. But as of January 1st, 2015, I think both those guys got to feel pretty good about, you know, coaching under that pressure in this season, which is always a difficult thing. I mean, this is a pretty, you know, coaching high major basketball, unforgiving business. Like when you, if you ever get fired, it is very rare that you get a comparable job. Like in, in most other professions, like let, let's say, God forbid something happened to me or something happened to you. I mean, theoretically, we'd be able to, I, I would hope we'd be able to get another job doing something similar right. at a similar level. But in college basketball, I, I know Mark Gottfried is a, is a, an exception to this rule, but um, but by and large, once you lose a job, you don't get a job like the one you just lost ever again. And I've always thought that must be insane to to work, um, to, to have your entire career and livelihood tied up in 18 and 19 year olds and not just, um, you know, for now, but but theoretically forever. And so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, again, still early, but but so far so good for Tom Crean and Kevin Willard. Right. No, no question. They've both been terrific out of the gate. But here's something that's amazing, and this is why college basketball is, you know, obviously the craziest sport to cover and the focus on 365 days a year. Knee-jerk reactions in conference play, and I'm going to write about this in the next couple of weeks, is something that we all have to do a better job of staying away from. This is something that I think people should keep in mind today because it's New Year's Day. Remember this in terms of teams starting slow out of the gate in conference play. A year ago, Connecticut was 0-2 in the AAC. They lost to Houston and SMU on the road. And a year ago, Baylor was 2-8 in Big 12 play and wound up rallying to play in the Big 12 tournament title game and also playing in the Sweet 16. So you have two teams from a year ago that were horrible out of the gate in their own leagues. One wound up winning the national championship. The other wound up playing in the Sweet 16. And remember, Baylor was the team that pounded Creighton into submission last year in the round of 32. Right. And Creighton was the team in January and February that everybody was talking about as a potential Final Four team. It is funny, and just a reminder, that it is a very long season. And there's, uh, there's so many twists and turns. It can, um, I, I think, it, it, particularly in the, in the um, era of social media, it's very... Um, simple to jump on and say, ah, this team's terrible or this team's great. But you look up two weeks later and, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed uh, within the sport. That uh, was certainly true last year, uh, probably going to be true again this year. Let's go back to the Big East for a second. Villanova seems to be uh, the class of the league, um, as expected. They beat Butler yesterday um, pretty comfortably. I know it was like a 11, 12-point final score, but they were ahead by double digits basically the entire second half. And every time Butler, you know, would make a shot or two to get it back down to five or six, 
you know, Villanova would go on a 5-6-7-0 run and, and bounce it back up to double digits. But, um, you know, take a big picture look at the league. Seven of the t- of the ten schools are in the top 45 at the Ken Palm rankings right now. The league is rated third uh, nationally at Ken Palm right now. I know some folks were uh, concerned about the split and and, you know, some, certainly some coaches were concerned about the move from ESPN to Fox Sports 1. But but so far, um, the league is holding up okay. Is this sustainable long-term? Can the Big East um, continue to be a nationally relevant uh, power conference in basketball despite all of the changes it's endured? Well, I think it can be. And I think, you know, as you examine what went wrong last year, you can see why the league struggled from a national perception standpoint. Last year, Georgetown starts out the season with a 10-3 and record with Josh Smith at center. Right. He's ruled ineligible by the NCAA. He's not in school anymore at Georgetown. They finished the season with an 8-12 and record. Then you look at Butler, another team that was added to the league because it played so well in the NCAA tournament under Brad Stevens. They didn't have Roosevelt Jones. Then you look at St. John. St. John struggled last year out of the gate. They were 0-5 in league play. So those three teams right there, St. John, Butler, and Georgetown, were all non-factors in their league because of different issues. Two of them were personnel issues. Another one was St. John's going off to a bad start. And another thing you have to remember, Marquette, which everybody thought would be the team to beat in the league because of Buzz Williams, mm-hmm. lost potentially its starting point guard before the season in Dwayne Wilson to a broken leg, and then they didn't really have a lead guard that could take over things. Dwayne Wilson right now looks like a pretty good player for Steve Wojnowski. Right. So when you examine why the league struggled, it's pretty easy. And I think that compounded with the fact that the Atlantic 10 had two older teams in St. Louis and St. Joe's, along with a GW team that featured two fifth-year seniors in Mo Creek and Isaiah Armwood hurt the perception of the Big East. But when you really try to split things like an atom, you can see why the Big East struggled last year. There was a lot of personnel situations. Some former Big East schools are now in the American Athletic Conference, obviously, and that league right now seems to be a little bit of a mess. SMU struggled early, but looks good now. It pounded South Florida yesterday. Uh, Temple got some transfers eligible and now has won four straight, including wins. Um, over Kansas and then at Connecticut. Memphis is playing better, but still has zero quality wins. Cincinnati is without its coach. UConn's just 6-5. and five. Do you have any idea who the best team in that league is right now? I've said all year long that I think SMU is clearly the best team. I didn't think SMU last year was a team that could make the NCAA tournament. I thought they were a team that could have won in the NCAA tournament. Now, it's a different team, and obviously they've had to get through some things, not having Marcus Kennedy for the first semester, but Here's the thing that you really see when you're watching SMU right now. Keith Frazier is a different player from this year to last year. He's doubled the scoring output. He's taking better shots. He's shooting the basketball more and at a higher clip. Another thing you can really take away from watching SMU, when I was in Dallas before the season, Larry Brown was really concerned about who was going to be their go-to perimeter defender because last year Nick Russell was so critical for the Ponies because you got to remember, in the American Conference last year, you had to guard Shabazz Napier, Sean Kilpatrick, Joe Jackson, Russ Smith, and Nick Russell kind of anchored SMU's perimeter defense. Ryan Manuel has become SMU's Nick Russell. He's become their glue guy. So the Ponies now have won eight in a row heading into this weekend game at Cincinnati. I think they're clearly the best team. And I think, you know, aside from that, I think you have a Cincinnati team that while they're playing without Mick Cronin, 
is still kind of carrying out the same type of philosophy that he wanted to put in place. I mean, Cincinnati, again, you know, and I don't want to say anything to disparage any of the players in Cincinnati, but they had far less talent than the NC State team that they played the other day in Raleigh, sure. and they dominated them from tip to buzzer. Um, with SMU, uh, Larry has obviously done a terrific job there. Uh, his credentials are... Uh, you know, it can't be questioned. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He's won a national championship at the Division One level. He's won a world championship at the professional level. Um, still, are you surprised that SMU has become this relevant underneath him? I'll be honest with you. I thought it was silly when they, they seemed like a reach to go hire Larry Brown to coach SMU. And yet what that school did was give him the resources to go out and hire a terrific staff. Um, they've, they've, you know, he is not much of a... Uh, uh, enthusiastic recruiter, uh, but he has a staff that is, and they've they've given him a roster um, that he can work with. And you give him a roster, and and like the guy's one of the best, might be the best who's ever done it. I mean, I think if you were to put together a list of of coaches of all time who are the best to ever like you know stand on a sideline, he 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 could re he's reasonably on the list, and you could reasonably put him uh, at the top if you wanted to. And so, right, um, are are like. Still, I, I, I didn't see this working the way it's working. Did you see this coming? No, I didn't see it coming, and I can't believe how relevant SMU nationally is just a few years after he's been hired. Yeah. But, you know, Gary, I think sometimes when you watch coaches in the NBA, because they play 82 games and sometimes 20 or 25 games in the playoffs, you can't really zero in as much as you can in college about what their strengths are, because in college they're only playing between 30 and 40 games. But you know this very well because you've covered the sport for a while. Every kid, okay, at that level, when you're talking about, you know, borderline top 100 kids or players that have a chance to play for money, has, you know, a parent or a handler or an AAU coach or a high school coach. They have all these people around their circle telling them that they have to get more shots and they need to showcase something in their game. And the one thing that always resonates to me when I watch SMU they get the highest percentage shot nearly every time down the floor. That is a credit to nobody except for Larry Brown. When you can deal with all those ancillary things and still get players between 18 and 22 to be that unselfish, that's a credit to you. They take the highest percentage shot possible, and they're never in the wrong spot on defense. And, look, I think they had some issues, like, like we said, earlier in the season, but you look at them, they don't have any bad losses. They lost to Gonzaga. They lost at Indiana, a game that you and I were watching together. And when you went, go back, when you go back and look at that game, SMU was up eight in the second half and had four consecutive possessions with an eight-point lead to extend the lead, and they didn't do it. And Indiana made a bevy of threes, and then they lost at home to Arkansas, which they didn't play their best. But there's no bad losses, you know, on this team's resume. And we know from following Larry Brown in the NBA, his teams always get better. That team last year absolutely got better, even though they got left out of the uh, NCAA tournament. You mentioned something that's interesting about, you know, dealing with whether it's uh, parents wanting more shots, kids wanting more shots, um, AAU coaches, handlers wanting more shots, and getting, you know, young people to buy in to a, uh, to a team concept for the greater good. And though Larry is um, obviously fabulous at that, uh, the guy who's doing it right now better than anybody else is John Calipari in, in Lexington. So far... Um, you know, 13 and 0, I guess it is 12 double digit wins. Closest victory, uh, uh, was eight points. That was at Louisville last weekend. And he's got, you know, nine McDonald's All Americans, 
and uh, a roster filled with future pros, all playing about 20 minutes a game, all seemingly bought in. Is that something that can last throughout the whole season? Or at some point, does it just become very difficult to keep everybody um, happy when you have that many talented players? I don't think it's going to be difficult for Kentucky to stay this unselfish and this locked in because look at the people that have set a precedent at Kentucky under John Calipari. Anthony Davis and Michael Kidd Gilchrist were the first and second picks in the 2012 NBA draft, and they took the fourth and fifth most shots on a team that won the national championship. And look, I mean, John Calipari has, I think, built a brand right now at Kentucky that is stronger than any other brand we have seen in the last quarter century in college basketball. And I think the one thing that he hasn't done, because let's face it, He's put five players into the first round of the NBA draft. He's won a national championship. The one thing that he hasn't done, which I think is a bucket list thing for him to accomplish, is to have an undefeated season. And one thing that people really need to start looking at right now, because we have the conversations, whether it's you know online, on social media, on television, on radio, who can beat Kentucky? And the real thing people need to rethink is, Who is going to have a chance to beat Kentucky? And this is what I mean by that. Nobody has shown that they're good enough to have a game within striking distance against the Wildcats 34, 35, 36 minutes in. Texas was close, but at the end of the game, you never felt like the Longhorns were going to win. Louisville was competitive, but at the end of the game, you never felt like the Cards were going to win. It's not just about being able to beat Kentucky. It's about playing well enough for 33, 34, 35 minutes to have a chance to beat the Wildcats. That's the thing, and I, I think it's got lost a little bit in the whole Tyler Lewis, uh Andrew Harrison conversation where I, I think it's pretty clear if you watch them that they are better when Tyler Eulis is running that team. So, uh, so Certainly they were better in the second half against Louisville when they were running that when he was running that team. And so the conversation goes, um, how is Andrew Harrison and 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 to a, a lesser extent Aaron Harrison and and Mr. Harrison gonna react when 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 maybe Tyler is is running things in close games? But how often is that gonna be necessary? Because they're probably right. not gonna be in close games too often. And and though I think they're at their best with Tyler Eulis. They're probably, if you took Tyler Eulis and just like removed him from the team, they'd still be the best team in the country without him. So like they're the best. No doubt. I, that's the thing is like they're at their best, I think. They're at their best with Eulis, but even without him, they're still better than everybody else. Well, this is where I look at too because, you know, Kentucky's, you know, second platoon and reserves don't get enough credit. They have players right now playing half the game. And I mean this with all due respect to other programs. Some of these players would have their jerseys retired if they went elsewhere. Yeah. If Dakari Johnson went somewhere else in the Midwest, whether it was Purdue or Cincinnati, he would have his number retired. If Marcus Lee went to Cal, like many people thought he went out of high school, instead of Kentucky, he would have his number retired. And these players are just pieces to the puzzle, which is to what really I think might be the best team we have seen in college basketball possibly since Rick Pitino's 1996 Kentucky team. Well, to your point, I mean, look at Kyle Wilcher right now. He'd be a bit player on this Kentucky team. He's a leading scorer on a top-ten team at Gonzaga. I mean, and and I, I think, I, I don't know if every guy on Kentucky's roster, at least the top nine, could go do something like what Wilcher's doing, but I, I think the majority of them could go to another top-10, 15, 20-program in America and be a star, you know, be a leading scorer, be a leading rebounder, be a 30-minute, 30 33-minute-per-game guy. 
And um, it just speaks to the to the level of talent that John's been able to assemble um, in Lexington. Another blue blood program, uh, traditional power, uh, who isn't having such a good year like Kentucky is Michigan State. They're nine and five right now. Already have two home losses. Um, have have the recruiting misses just finally caught up to to Tom Izzo? I mean, is that is that what's happening now? You look at the roster and you just go. Uh, that's a roster that 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 looks like about a nine and five team. We always give Tom the benefit of the doubt because God, if anybody deserves it, it's him, and he still might get this thing straight. But uh, you look at that roster, you look at the talent, and it's it just looks like a bunch of guys, doesn't it? Well, and I also think, I mean, you know, let's call a spade a spade right now. Brandon Dawson, considering yep. what he showed early in his career, has been a bit of a disappointment. Sure. And I think, you know, the one thing that Tom Izzo has struggled with, and, you know, I've talked to him about this, and I know you have too, is how do I keep Brandon Dawson's motor churned up to the level that he showed last year in the Big Ten tournament when he was averaging 17 or 18 points a game and 9 or 10 rebounds a game? If Brandon Dawson plays like an all-Big Ten player, then Michigan State is probably 12-2 and two right now. Yeah. Yeah, they probably beat Notre Dame. They probably don't lose to Maryland, and they don't lose another game along the way. So I think that's really the issue right now because you look right now at this Michigan State team. Who's the alpha dog? Denzel Valentine is a terrific all-around glue guy. He doesn't look like right now he's ready to be a Draymond Green level player for this program. Travis Trice again is better than he was last year as a backup to Keith Affling, but he is not an alpha dog like we've seen this team have at the lead guard position. He's not somebody like Mateen Cleaves. He's not somebody like Marcus Taylor. He's not somebody like some of the other lead guards that Michigan State has had. So I think, you know, they are a team, like a lot of other teams in the Big Ten, that is going to be in a lot of 60-60 games with four minutes to play. And this is the amazing thing about the Big Ten. I really believe it. Every game that doesn't feature Wisconsin this yep. year, and we've seen it the first couple of days of the league, is going to be a coin flip game. If you have a relative coaching in the Big Ten, just pop the nitro glycerin pills now. <laughs> right? I mean, like a, a good example, like Minnesota-Purdue yesterday. Just like, you know, you right. look up, five minutes to go, it's anybody's. There's going to be a lot of that. Wisconsin's clearly the class. But after that, you could probably take five, six schools and reasonably pick any of them to finish second in the league. That's just, uh, I don't really know what to make of, of that league yet. It's going to be a lot of... Uh, a lot of home teams winning in, in Big Ten league games, and then if you can steal them on the road, that'll be the difference between finishing second and seventh uh, in that league uh, this year. Remember, today's Iowa College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is now redesigned with Squarespace 7 interface, including integration with Google Apps, partnership with Getty Images, 15 new templates and cover pages, and Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everything starts just $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content's going to look great on every device every time. To start a free trial, there's no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com and make sure to use the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. That's Squarespace. Start here go anywhere. Let's do some news and notes real quick presented by Squarespace. Duke right now 12 and 0 after yesterday's uh win. I saw an interesting stat on them this morning. Um they played 12 games. Um they've only trailed for a total all season of 5 minutes 
and 55 uh, seconds. I, I imagine that's better than anybody else in the country in, as it pertains to that particular stat. And I just wonder if, you know, you, I, and, and basically everybody have spent so much time talking about how awesome Kentucky is. And Kentucky is awesome. They deserve all of the attention. Have we, have we, oh, this sounds crazy because it's Duke and it's Krzyzewski, but have we overlooked how awesome this Duke team is too? Yeah, I think we have to a degree. And, you know, I think what's ironic is the more and more I watch this Duke team, they remind me of the 2012 Kentucky team. Me too. I wrote about this. Yeah, I wrote about this uh, like a month ago. They like You start looking at the pieces, and the pieces oh, unbelievable. It looks a lot like that 2012 Kentucky team. Yeah, and you know, one thing I'm curious about, they had an unbelievable win at Wisconsin in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Can they continue to do that? In the ACC, one of the games I have circled in January, Duke at Louisville, yep. January 17th at high noon. So, you know, I'm curious to see this team play on the road, but let's face it right now. The ACC, which we all thought would become the old Big East, does not look like an eight or nine bid league right now. So after that top third, I don't know how good this league is going to be. Um, you mentioned Louisville. Uh, Rick Pitino, after the loss to Kentucky where – you know, let's face it, uh, Chris Jones just wasn't very good. He's terrific on the ball, but uh, as an on-the-ball defender, but just it could make a shot and really hasn't shot the ball super well uh, this season. Basically benched Chris Jones um, in, in the most recent game and afterwards said it was because of the flop, but I don't know if I buy that completely. Um, what, 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 how should Rick coach this team going forward? Uh, you know, uh, Chris Jones has been the point guard, but... Um, is it possible they need to use him in a different way because he just shoots the ball too much from that position? What, 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 what's the best approach for Louisville going forward? You know, I, I don't think that he'll you know, come off the point guard. But, you know, from talking to people, and you've done the same, who have worked for Rick Pitino or you know, played for him and then worked for him, they always talk about how Coach Pitino has the most unbelievable ways to motivate his players. Sure. And I think that's what this is. And I think, you know, similar to what we were talking about, with Larry Brown's teams, Rick Pitino's teams always seem to get better as the season goes along. And you know that that's the type of team that, you know, pardon the cliche here, that are always going to wring out the sponge. Mm -hmm. So I felt really that Louisville was going to be a contender for the ACC championship this year, along with Duke and Virginia. And I'm not wavering from that feeling because, let's face it right now, they've lost one game. I think when they're playing well, they have the best backcourt in college basketball. And I think... Again, if he's not playing Kentucky, they have the national player of the year in Montrezl Harrell. Yeah. The key to this team is can Wayne Blackshear make enough three-point shots to give them some sort of a threat from the perimeter? He doesn't have to be Kyle Keurig. He doesn't have to be Luke Hancock. But can he just make enough to give them another threat in terms of a fourth score to put around the big three. If that happens, I think you would agree Louisville has a chance to go to a Final Four. Certainly. I mean, I, I think we've seen, um, you know, we look at teams as they play Kentucky, uh, particularly Kansas and Louisville, and we go, wow, they, they weren't really – uh, the Kansas game was not competitive at all. The Louisville game was competitive for about 25 minutes. But like you said earlier, like I was courtside for that game. There was never a moment in the final 10 minutes where you felt like Kentucky was any threat to lose um, or in any in, in any sort of position to lose that game. And I think sometimes we go, wow, Kentucky ran Louisville off the court. Or, wow, Kentucky ran Kansas off the court. And we start to discount those schools without recognizing 
um, they could they, like they might be Final Four teams. Like Kentucky just might be that much better than everybody else that they can run Final Four teams off the court. But um, yeah, I don't have much of a difference in opinion about Louisville today than I did. Uh, two weeks ago, if they if they just didn't happen to have a non-league game scheduled against Kentucky, uh, they'd still be undefeated and ranked in the uh, top five right now. You mentioned the ACC. Um, Duke at Louisville is going to be terrific. Um, Duke at Virginia January 31st is going to be terrific. And uh, I think we've all known for a while that Tony Bennett was was a, a, a is a coaching star. But I, I really sat down earlier this week and looked at the numbers. And, um, you know, recruiting rankings, they are what they are. You can like them, love them, hate them, whatever. But they exist. And I thought this was interesting. Um, Kentucky has, like, you know, nine top 50 players or, or 10 top former top 50 players, nine McDonald's All-Americans. Duke has, I think, 10 former top 50 players, uh, three of the top 20 NBA prospects in the world. You look at Virginia's roster, zero consensus top 50 recruits. Um, no projected first round picks right now, although Justin Anderson could theoretically end up one. And yet Tony Bennett is going on, is on his way maybe to a second straight ACC title. Once upon a time, Brad Stevens got a reputation of being, you know, sort of this college coaching wizard because of uh, the things he was able to do at Butler with a roster that didn't suggest you, you should be able to do those things. Although in hindsight, you look at a roster with Gordon Hayward and maybe we shouldn't have been surprised as, as we were, but um, I, I guess what I'm asking is this. It's like Tony Bennett, like uh, like the current coaching wizard of college basketball. I mean, what he's doing right now at Virginia, and then you combine it with he took Washington State to a Sweet 16, um, it, it, it really is pretty amazing, isn't it? No, it's definitely amazing. But one of the things that I think is really an underrated reason for Virginia's success is the addition two years ago of London Parenthesis, and I have never seen a player score just over three points per game and be so valuable to a team, but I really look back at Virginia's program before they had London Parenthesis, and there just wasn't the same type of continuity. They tried Joe Harris at the point, they tried Malcolm Brogdon at the point, and things didn't click. Right now, you have a guy that's really the epitome of a security blanket on the floor for Tony Bennett. His assist-to-turnover ratio is 3-1. to one. He never gets tired, and again, he's the furthest thing from a flashy player, but he has been the missing link to this Virginia program. And again, I don't want to dispute the fact that this is an excellent defensive team and that they've gotten players better over the years, but I don't think Virginia is Virginia without London Parenthesis. He's the gas in the Cavs engine. Uh, I, I think everybody recognizes they're a, a terrific defensive team. Sometimes because of the tempo, people, people confuse – that oh, they don't score a lot of points, so they're not a great offensive team. And yet, if you adjust for tempo, they're one of the best offensive teams in the country as well. And, you know, they, they lose two key players off last year's team, Akil Mitchell, Joe Harris, and yet they, they seem to be, at least all the data suggests that they're not only as good, but, but maybe even better than a team that won the ACC regular season title last year and the ACC tournament last year. Do you think they are ACC champions right now, or, or would you predict Duke to be that? You know, I'm still also keeping Louisville in this yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I picked Louisville to win the ACC at the start of the season. So I think those three schools are all teams that have a chance to be a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. I think they're all schools that eventually will have a chance to get to a Final Four, and they're kind of on their own separate island. And then after that, I think North Carolina, if it can find a way 
to find a capable guard, whether yeah. it's Joel Berry or Nate Britt, to put next to Marcus Page, is a team right now, Garrett, that I'd say is probably going to be anywhere from a 3, 4, or 5 seed, you know, in the NCAA tournament. And then I think the team in the ACC that nobody's talking about is Notre Dame. Yep. Because Notre Dame has a player in Jaron Grant that is as good statistically right now as any guard in the country, and nobody talks about him. And really, you look at the supporting cast of this team at Notre Dame right now, which is really explosive offensively. Demetrius Jackson, Steve Asturia, and Zach August, three starters, have all taken quantum leaps in their production from a year ago. And everybody kind of forgot that Notre Dame was a perennial NCAA tournament team under Mike Bray. And again, they haven't flown the plane yet. They haven't gone through an ACC season and been successful. But the way you look at the team right now, it's a team that will be back in the field of 68 come March. I think that's the team that's a little bit of the unknown commodity that people aren't talking about in the ACC, but could be really good in a couple months. And they just sort of served as a reminder as well that though the ACC... Certainly in the middle and definitely at the bottom might not be what we thought it 